Welcome to Jaipur Bites. I'm your host, Lakshdatta. We're live from day four of ZJLF 2019, and the session you're about to listen to is called Women and Power. Mary Beard discusses her book with Jermaine Greer and Rennie Edolage in conversation with B. Rowlett. briefly because I've got you all here. I have a personal plea to each and every one of you. Please go to the festival bookshop and buy a book. Any book. Any book. Books are vectors of change. Books are vital. We need books. If you need to buy a gift for someone, buy them a book. People don't need more stuff. They need books. Commercial break over. I'm going to join my team here. No, not at all. No, no, I'm just kidding. So we have Professor Jermaine Greer. Namita Bandari, Reni Edo Lodge, and Professor Mary Beard, whose book, Women and Power, will be the starting position for our debate today. Um, so I'd like to invite you, Mary, to give us a, an intro to what the book's about. Oh, thanks, Bea. I hope it'll be the starting point, but not the ending point uh, of what we're going to say, because um, this is going to be a discussion, right? I just thought I'd explain a, a bit about where the book came from and in some ways what I think the problems with it because that might help us um, uh, provoke people to engage. Uh, what it is, is um, t- the text, basically the text of two lectures I gave four years apart in London. One about women's voices and why we don't hear them Um, both literally and metaphorically, and the other about uh, the power, women's power in the contemporary world. And really, they were both uh, an attempt to reflect on the world, the modern world in in which I lived and as I saw it, back through history and back because it was me to the classical world. And in fact, I start... uh, what is now the book, but it was the first lecture, with an amazing story from the beginning of Homer's Odyssey, probably the second surviving work of Western literature, written in the 8th century BC. Well, no, composed, not written in the 8th century BC, um, which tells the story of Odysseus's return home as a Greek hero, quotes from the Trojan War, uh, back to his wife and child, Penelope in their palace in Ithaca, takes um, Odysseus and the other Greeks 10 years to massacre the Trojans. And when they've done that, it takes Odysseus 10 years to get home. Um, He's held up uh, on the way by a variety of storms, natural disasters, and seductive women. Meanwhile, at home, his wife Penelope is holding fort uh, with immense capability and she is bringing up their son, their little boy, Telemachus. And although we now tend to think of the Odyssey as the story of Odysseus's return, it is also the story of the young Telemachus growing up. And at the beginning, very near the beginning of the first book, we are in Ithaca, and there was a, 
an incident happened which I'd hardly ever noticed before. But Penelope is upstairs doing her woman's work. She comes down into the central hall of the house and she finds the bard singing about what a rotten time the Greek, quotes heroes are having uh, coming home from Troy. And she perfectly reasonably says, oh, bard, couldn't you choose something a bit happier than that very gloomy number? Telemachus, who's at that point a wet-behind-the-ears teenager, says to her mother, shut up, speech is man's business, go back upstairs. And so she does. And as I said, I'd read the Odyssey many times, um, and had always somehow taken this for granted until I stopped and thought, well, blimey, you know, that is a foundational moment in the silencing of women. And so I traced some of those moments through history, and I traced also in the second lecture the use of classical myth to disempower women who wanted public, a public voice and a public position. Uh, you know, why was Hillary Clinton shown as the decapitated, snaky-headed monster um, known as Medusa? Why was Trump, who I suspect has never read any Greek mythology at all, why was Trump's campaign um, playing into this? And that's really what this very short book um, uh, explores. And... I suppose its underlying theme is what are the templates of power uh, that, uh, that are somehow being constructed for us in our mind's eye uh, that always seem to exclude women. You know, why if you're a successful female politician like Angela Merkel or Hillary Clinton, must you always wear a trouser suit? Okay. Um, so it takes a relatively um, broad view of that. And on that point, you, you, you elaborate at length about what power looks like. It's a power as a structure. It's a, yeah. a pre-packaged male template. You describe it as a, as a structure yeah. that is already coded as male. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's not just coded as male. It's coded in many other ways. It's coded by what languages you speak, by what color your skin is. And I would like actually to ask Rennie now to, to elaborate more on the theme of, of the structure and the coding of power. Can I just say one thing, just, just to, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, Benny, before you even started. Um, I think that the, the, the questions this raises, this is written from a very British point of view. I was giving two lectures to a British audience, um, and I was looking around at my world, and one of the questions I hope that we're going to be able to address here Absolutely. is really how far those coded structures are universal, how far they're modulated in different ways in different cultures. Because I've, I thought a bit about that, but it's what, in, what I see the book lacks. So. Okay. We're not arguing about what the book lacks. No, no, I, we're, you know, we're taking the premise of the no. book and pushing it outwards. I, so want, to, I, want, to, uh, I want to be very upfront about, okay, okay. about what this lacks, because I think it does lack. That's why I want to hear from other people. We'd love to hear from Rennie on this. Well, I can't promise the, uh, the front lawn um, a, like, five-point, like, you know, article about what the book lacks. But what I can say is, um, now, on the theme of women in power, I think that 
that when I reflect on the title of your book, Mary, for me, I just keep thinking about the Me Too movement, which is, you know, happening globally and how that is a real, that, that is women globally reckoning with power, particularly in the labor part, labor movement, particularly in how, you know, gendered power um, keeps creating barriers for us within our professions. And, um, you know, that's something that I continue to be inspired by. I wanted, uh, I wanted to ask you more specifically about what power looks like, because we're talking about the, the coding and the structure of power, what it means when we think of power. Well, I mean, on, on that point, you know, what I was going to say next is that I don't think it's a coincidence that that movement and how it was kicked into the mainstream was actually um, by some of the most powerful women in the world, women whose faces were incredibly familiar with, and um, women who actually had, in the grand scheme, to, scheme of things, a lot less lo to lose than other women. And so I think that, you know, as feminists, we sort of like exist in this interesting sort of dichotomy, right, in terms of, you know, we see where we, do, we lack power. We see where the power structure is, you know, cutting us out or at least trying to push us onto the sidelines. But also within that, we have to reckon with the structural power that we do benefit from. You know, one of the big criticisms of the Me Too movement was, you know, these are rich, wealthy, and very privileged women. And they are. They absolutely are, you know, particularly the Hollywood actresses, who also reckon with... start with the Hollywood actresses. No, no, it, it absolutely, absolutely didn't. But I would argue that those are the women who kicked it into the mainstream and who created a situation in which, you know, suddenly it's being spoken about uh, Hollywood award ceremonies, um, where we would usually talk about what dresses they're wearing, right? Um... They were incredibly powerful and, and still reckoned with, you know, rape and sexual assault within their jobs. And so what I've found quite interesting about that movement is how some of those women who are very powerful are now reckoning with their own structural privilege. Because, you know, I've just finished reading a proof of an incredible book that's not actually out yet. It's going to be out in May in the UK um, called The Farm. And it's... Um, uh, it's a fiction book, but it, it speaks to the power dynamics between women, race, class, and how, uh, you know, how these things actually get in the way of solidarity that women could, uh, a big solidarity movement that women could be building, you know, race, class, economics. We still live in a society where middle and upper class women are relying on women lower down on the class structure than them to look after their kids, you know. <laughs> You actually mentioned yesterday in one of your panels that you, you would love to see feminism be more broad and sort of op more open. Can you elaborate in, on Indeed. That? You know, I do like, deeply believe in coalitions and shared aims, um, despite um, differences between us, including power differences. But those things can't begin to happen un until we reckon with the power that we sometimes structurally hold over other women. And that is often to do with class and race. Namita, please can you bring us into what's happened in India's Me Too movement and, you know, and, and, take, a, and take a move from, from the powerful from the powerful Me Too to the more grassroots end of the movement? Um, B, before I, I, I will do that, I'm not avoiding the question, but I just want what's to... What's happening? They just won't answer oh, my question. I will, I will, I promise. Uh, but I just, I, I want to talk about what power looks like in India. And, and, and there's a reason why it looks the way it does. So in Parliament, we have 11% uh, women, and that is the largest we've ever had in our history of 70 years uh, since we've been having elections. Uh, and yet we've had 1 million women go through the panchayat system, where 33% seats are reserved for them. 
Now, I'm not willing to believe that of those one million women, not one was capable of graduating to the assemblies or to parliament, and yet less than 1% have even made it. To the, so the, the, the keys to the kingdom are, I mean, not only has the kingdom been designed by men, but the keys to the kingdom are with men. So I was at a session earlier and uh, where, where somebody mentioned to me agricultural tools in India, where there's a hammer, where there's a sickle, are actually designed by men for men. But men don't use them. It's the women who use them. And of course, their, their work becomes that much harder because they're doing the labor. They don't get credit for it. They don't get paid for it. It's invisible. And yet, so yet that's yet another example of what power looks like, power that is designed by men. So at, at the workplace, and here I'm coming to your question on Me Too. So the workplace is designed by men. So one of the big problems we're dealing with in India is women dropping out of work. And these are educated women. They ed in fact, the most educated women are dropping out the fastest. And right now, only 24% women are in the labor force. This is government statistics. These are not my figures. These are not NGO figures. This is the government admitting that only 24% women actually work. And one of the reasons, there are many reasons, and all of us have various theories. I've been working on this for the last 18 months. And we say it's the patriarchy, it's unpaid care work. But the undeniable fact is that in corporates are designed by men. And so you have networking and this lovely let's meet for drinks after work. A woman wants to go home because she's got to get dinner on the table. She's got to look after her kids. She's got all these roles, some of them self-assigned, some of them... But on, the, on the subject of what power looks like, though, I mean, work for many people is power. I mean, Mary Wollstonecraft would have argued that financial independence Absolutely. is the most critical and, form And here's of power. the tragedy, which is that because the discourse in India since 2012 has been with sexual violence, and rightly so, because sexual violence is such a huge problem. It has. I'm, I'm particularly keen to get to the, to the Me Too, because we've looked at how Me Too has, has been right. a, a weapon... So what is, but I, what I, I, is Me Too all about? And, and let's, in India, I'll, I'll quickly bring everybody down to earth. Me Too has really erupted basically in two sectors. In media and media. I mean, a little bit in film, uh, you know, maybe stand-up comedy, entertainment. Not really in Bollywood because nobody's naming names. It's all a wonderful little brotherhood, again, designed by men. And we're not going to spill those secrets because women, I mean, Tanushi Datta never got a role again when she spoke about being sexually harassed. She then ended up getting married and moving to the United States. So the Me Too movement in India is great because we've broken a silence and is not great because we've done nothing. You know, it hasn't really moved since October. We had this massive out, outing in October. Uh, yes, we know certain people are not going to get invited to literature festivals in a hurry. But is that enough? Is that what we're wanting? I think, what, I think the fundamental fight really is for dignity and equality and to win a place around the table. It's a, it's a struggle. Women all over the world have struggled to get that place around the table. And if you cannot look at Me Too with just in terms of sexual harassment. You have to look at Me Too in broader terms. And we're still watching. We're still watching. Thank you for that. You just talked about being at the table. And one of the questions, Mary, that you ask is... Um, it's, and it's about women finding a voice, and you address this. You write that women think, how do I get heard? How do I get taken seriously? How do I belong in this discussion? And then you, and then you write, what we need is some good old-fashioned 
consciousness raising. Well, that sounds like a job for Jermaine Greer. <laughs> Why, How would you, you conscious raise people to, around this issue of women's relationship to power? I've been thinking about this quite hard uh, for most of last night. And I'm still thinking quite hard. And I'd like to back up a bit because I'm interested in this idea that the system is coded male because I can't quite figure out who's done the coding. If it was done before you were born and so on. How do, we know that we have a school system and the school system is itself a fairly peculiar, might even be thought of as patriarchal, Romanoid establishment. But I was thinking of, of when I was in the Big Brother house. Well, for those that you don't know, Jermaine Greer was in the, the Celebrity Big Brother household, which is a sort of they torture chamber is, on worry. TV. It's, a, it's a, 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 a reality show on television. Anyway, it, I, the women who were involved in that particular go-round didn't want to talk to me about anything at all. So I ended up observing the men. And I realized I had never observed men in a group before. And I had never seen how they reacted to having nothing to do and not knowing each other. And you know what they did? And I think this is significant because we don't get it. They started to play a game. They invented the game, which was flicking a bottle top into a cup. They played that game with heart and soul. They competed. They were rivals. They split up. They became teams. And I was thinking... They're really enjoying this. So what does they, this tell us about the sort of coding of structural power? They enjoy power, and they seek it from a very early age. You can watch little boys in a nursery school fighting for position, for uh, ascendancy over other little boys, and they're into it. You know, who's, who was it said? Bill Shankly said, football is not a matter of life and death. It's much more serious than that. Because, it, and when you look at someone like Boris Johnson, who is making, well, he's making fun of everything. He is playing politics as a game. And he knows that it's a game that women have never learnt and that they would be frightened to engage in. They're already be having their earnestness undermined. I can sense from the vibe that Mary wants to jump in here. She can jump in. Jump away, my dear. Thank you, Jermaine. I will I'll plunge in. Um, you talk a bit, and I don't think you mean this, but you, you talk about um, education. You talk about watching little kids and watching these little, you know, little boys fighting to the death, as it were. I mean, I, what it seems to me, thinking about this, is that actually the coding is, is not something that's very easy for us to see. And we don't have to say, oh, it's just natural. You know, it's testosterone or whatever. Now, we learn to be who we are from the pictures that we see around us, the stories our parents tell us, what we see on the television, how we interact with, uh, uh, with people on the street. I, I remember very vividly that I had two children very close together, one male and one female. You take them out... And as soon as they were actually indistinguishable as babies are, you can't tell a, a male from a female. Um, as soon as the person we interacted with uh, knew their gender, they would say to the girl something like, oh, you're going to wow the boys when you grow up. And they'd say to the boy, God, 
you're a goer, you're a thinker, and you suddenly saw that underneath any of the things that we might talk about when we think we're talking about gender, we actually insert that coding into these kids even without realizing it. You know, it takes more than a few fairy stories in which it turns out that the princess is the hero to change that coding. But how do we address that? Because in this book... Can I just say this about that? Yes. We know that we behave differently with boys and girls. We have done enough work on swapping babies around so you thought one was a boy and one was actually a girl and so on. And we discovered, for example, that we let girl babies cry longer. If we thought they were girls, they cried longer. We responded with food to a boy's complaints much more readily than we did to complaints that were coming from, we thought, girls. We do construct already these responses. But when I'm looking for how men um, negotiate power, it seems to me there's a lot more emotional satisfaction in it for them than it would be for us. I think your big brother house is interesting because the the one thing I've always wanted to do in my workplace is actually get a two-way mirror into the men's lavatories because I've always been absolutely convinced if you could listen to what the guys were saying when they knew there were no women around, you would you'd start to see what was going on. Yeah, I think that's probably true. But this is also one reason why men are so hostile to women who invade that space, whether you join the police or, or when you join, join the, the army or when you go... <laughs> Back to, to, to women and power. So to, in your book, you, which you describe as a manifesto, and yet, you know, it's, it, I was looking for advice. I was looking for, you know, where's the key, Mary? Where's the key? There's one thing that you say, and you, and you, and you, you suggest that we try thinking about power as a verb rather than a possession. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, well, I was in the position that you just said. I, you know, uh, it's called a manifesto. It's a very academic manifesto. It says, you know, actually, uh, action comes from thinking hard about a problem rather than a set of bullet points. Um, but and I was then really trying to think of alternative models for things getting done in the world that were not done in that kind of willy-waving, sword-wielding um, way we have of operating. I mean, it's very interesting in the English language that you know there are two things that you that you wield. If you use the word wield, you you wield a weapon a male weapon, and you wield power. So I was, I was trying and looking out for a place where you could see effective action, uh, public action. I think you could find many examples in workplaces and, and on domestic scale, but effective major public action. The only one that I thought really represented something different was um, the originally U.S. movement, Black Lives Matter, because there it seemed to me that it was a a movement which made a difference at a time when its female leaders were in no way household names in the way that most leaders of political movements become. I think that's changed, changing a bit now, but I thought there was a group of black women who did something without saying, you know, look at me. They said, look at what we're doing. 
But this was power as a verb. Yeah, I thought power as a verb. They were powering Black Lives Matter. They weren't wielding their power in the movement. But I thought that was, a, 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 in some ways, a, a crucial distinction. Anybody else want to pick that up? I think, you know, actually, if, when you then look at the big names of Black Lives Matter, I don't think it's a coincidence that you could point to a bunch of men, a bunch of male writers and a bunch of male activists who have curated personal brands off the back of a movement that was started by three black women. Yeah. I, I think that, that's absolutely right. And, and I think that, like, given, given that reality, those of us are trying to think of um, alternatives, models of power, and in the activist communities that I come from, it, we you tend to start from a place of non-hierarchy. Like, what, what do we do when our work becomes essentially capitalized off, off, off the back of essentially a bunch of men who create personal brands for themselves? That's not me saying that their work is not good. I'm just saying in terms of who you, they, they make themselves the household names. Yeah, well, it's a version of the cartoon that I have in the book. The old cartoon from Punch, which is uh, a, obviously a meeting, an office. There's a male chairman. There's about six or seven men and a woman. The woman's called Miss Triggs. And the chairman is saying, that's a very good suggestion, Miss Triggs. Would one of the men like to make it now? And that's... That hits the nail on the head. I have a story, and I remember reading this, and I think it was the Washington Post. So during the Obama White House, and Obama was this great feminist leader, uh, there were just a lot of women. You know, there were more women than ever. And yet, even in the Obama White House, they found that when they were sitting around the table and they'd have meetings, and one of them would make a suggestion, and all the men would look at her, and then they'd look at their shoelaces, and then drink their coffee, and they then go on to talking about other things. And then a few minutes later, the man would say the exact same thing, and everybody would look at him and say, wow, that's genius. And so the women then banded together, and they said, look, this won't, this won't do. And so they said, we are going to pull each other up. So if you, B. Rowlett, made a statement, I would then, and the men ignored, then I would come in, jump in, and say, well, no, I think what B is saying is really important. I think we should listen to her. And the men caught on. So sometimes I think we have to just be a little clever. Amplification. Amplification. I'm a big fan of, the, of, you know, raising up other people's voices. And on this idea of the women's voice, which you talk about a lot, not just the physical voice, but the idea of, a, you know, women in public spaces speaking out. And I have to say, you uh, as, have drawn the most unbelievable amount of heat online for the uh, audacity of being a woman speaking out and, and having a... a an expertise, a field of expertise. Um, what does that say about women that, that stand up and make a noise? Well, I think what you, you know, when you examine your own kind of Twitter history and that of other women, um, and many of them have had a much worse time than I have, um, but you, you start to think first, it must be something I said. You know, the, those people um, are very opposed to what I said about migration or whatever. Um, you, you soon, when you look through this stuff, see actually what they're objecting to you is not what you say, but that you are saying it at all. And the horrible tropes, I mean, you can give yourself a very nasty hour or two uh, just going through Twitter abuse. And you see that the tropes that they use about you and what you're saying 
go directly back thousands of years. You know, they'd say about me, um, I'm going to cut your head off and rape it. I want to cut your tongue out. Now, that is not saying I disagree with you about Britain's migration policy. That is saying, shut up. And it's what happened in classical myth to the, the victims of rape, you know. The famous stories about the victim has her tongue cut out so she cannot speak. And uh, many of these, I mean, I don't think many of these Twitter abusers have ever read the story of Philomela and Terius, but they certainly know it in their heads. They know that women are silenced by literally cutting out what enables them to speak. And that's Jermaine, what they do. What should, people, what should women do when someone tells them to shut up? Well, it's pretty obvious they should keep talking. Um, but, uh, I mean, there are lots of aspects to this. Uh, for many women, life is a matter of trying to get through from one day to the other. The mass of unpaid work and so forth. And, for example, why do so many women fake orgasm? We don't know how many fake orgasm. We, have, we see figures every week. They're generally published by Durex, so you can't really trust them. But what is, what is happening when a woman pretends to be enjoying a sexual encounter which she is not enjoying at all, which she wants to see over because she wants to go to sleep, because in the morning she has to get up, get the kids organized, get them to school, get herself to work, and so on. Um, we assume that non-consensual sex is something that happens between strangers that get dragged into a bush and all of that. It isn't. It happens in suburban houses. It happens every night of the week. And we have to understand that powerlessness is the condition that women know best. And what they're trying to do is to avoid the kind of clash that is going to use up the last of the little energy they have left. Renny. I want to pull up on a couple of points that have been made on this panel. Um, first off, uh, it, you mentioned earlier, you said, you know, the Me Too movement in India stalled in, in October. And I, and I want to push back on that a bit. I think that just because we're not seeing the conversations happening publicly does not mean they're not happening. I think that there are hundreds, if not hundreds of thousands of women right now across the world who, because of what was publicized by film stars and women working in the media, are having accountability conversations with their husbands and partners and, like, you're not going to read an op-ed about it in the New York Times, but it doesn't necessarily mean that that's not happening. Um, and I think that, you know, we often speak about a reckoning in terms of that movement. Um, I think that the gender dynamics of what it means to, uh, to be in a heterosexual relationship, as you mentioned, Jermaine, and, and heterosexual love between men and women is based on a disgusting and horrendous power differential, and that movement is upending it in people's homes, in people's bedrooms. But beyond that, I also want to point out that I, I don't want this panel to fall into a, a myth of a universal female experience. Yes, sexual violence, domestic violence, um, underpaid and undervalued labor, I think is something that women around the world can all resonate with. But the fact of the matter is there are various forms of structural power that, that women benefit from, some women benefit from at the expense such, of others. Such as, such as. Racism, classism, huge economic disparities in wealth. And I think that that is something that, you know, if we are looking to build broad coalitions in the feminist movement, 
has to continue to be addressed. You know, my personal experience being involved in feminism since I was a student was white women in particular wielding racism against me. Whenever I spoke up about racism, speaking to me as though I was the problem, seeking to marginalize my voice. And these were women who I thought I was working with. I remember when that initially, when that initially began happening to me, and it's something I wrote about in my book. In fact, it's the first chapter that I wrote about feminism, I felt a huge sense of betrayal. And I once believed in this sense, this like universal, you know, we're all sisters in arms working together to the same cause. And in that moment, I learned we are not. And if, our, if the movement does not continue to reckon with and, you know, seek to dismantle power structures that some women can benefit from, then that betrayal will continue to happen because the fact of the matter is, you know, I am not the woman who I was once a year, five years ago. I benefit from a huge amount of class privilege and a huge amount of wealth privilege thanks to my work. I cannot claim to have the same experience as a woman who serves me breakfast in a cafe. I simply can't. There's certainly many things that we have in common as women, but there are also things that are hugely different. And if I don't attempt to, you know, try and understand the perspective that she comes from, working for eight pounds an hour, then... Then, then where's the solidarity there? But, that, that's in, in a sense why, I mean, I hope you're right. I really hope you're right about Me Too having uh, a rich underbelly that we don't see, that, that, it's, going, that, that it's making a difference to what happens um, in, in places and houses that are private, that you can't talk about because they're private conversations. I really, really hope that's the case. Um, I'm not sure if I put my hand on my heart. I would be 100% convinced that it was. And I think that, I mean, I think that I finished this book about three days before Me Too became a hashtag. So it was, in a sense, as it were, not written with that in, in view. But I've obviously had to think about that um, subsequently. And I, I think that part of me really is optimistic, like you. Part of me thinks that whatever happens, you know, however many people get off or don't get off on whatever uh, legal charge it is, it will nevertheless have made a difference to how people talk about their relationships and what they will put up with. Um, part of me is much less um, optimistic than that. And part of me wonders, and this is going back in a way to Jermaine's point about the blokes, I kind of I found myself, and I've said this in the, the afterward I've done to the new edition of the book, part of me wonders, when I look at what these guys have done and what they do and what these powerful men do to women on a, apparently a day-in, day-out basis, I find myself saying, what do those guys say to themselves when they get home at night? You know, do they think, oh, do they rub their hands together and think, jolly good day there? You know, when they have forced an unwilling woman, you know, up against the wall in the shower? Or do some of them, and I really hope this is the case, do some of them feel filthy? I hope so. Well, that's what I want to know. Does well, anyone think they do? You know, uh, you know, there's been an interesting happening recently where um, some men are trying to claw the power back. The movement made a bit of a dent, got some people to lose some jobs, a few criminal proceedings here and there. It Just made go a bit quiet of a, for a few months and hope that it'll it, all go away. It made a bit of a dent in um, male power, and the responses we're getting is, you know, literary journals publishing um, 
think pieces by men who've been accused and feel terribly victimized. That was awful. <laughs> yes. That, that, that was terrible. Terribly victimized. And actually, if you read this stuff, because I'm interested in understanding the psychology behind people who, who do this to us as women. Um, you know, I really truly believe in a restorative justice. I think, for me personally, the aim of holding men accountable for the ways in which they hurt and malign and coerce women is not to throw them all in the bin or to throw them in jail or cancel them. It's actually to seek accountability and then change the behavior. But actually, when you read some of the stuff that these men are writing, they are not engaging in accountability. They're, they're actually in denial about what they've done because despite the fact that we're here, we're women, we're in public, we're speaking on behalf of ourselves, the objectification continues to persist. And, you know, actually, I think that, you know, because we all... I'm not going to say all of us, but we can all um, wield power. I don't know, I'm using the wrong word there, Mary, aren't I? Um, in, uh, in different ways. We're, like, we're verbing power. We're doing power, not wielding it. Yes, the... but, you know, because we can all, you know, engage in it in different ways, we ha also have to interrogate ourselves about our relationship with power. And here's a, a weird story, right? But, like, I recently inherited a pet because a, a family member of mine left the country. And... Um, I realized that the way that I was engaging with this animal was like a total objectification, total objectification. And, and it, w it wasn't until that I realized this is not a cuddly toy and this being is not in my life simply because I want to engage with it. Like when I realized that, I was like, oh my God, I'm literally acting like a man. Like I'm not even respecting this being's autonomy and what it wants, what the, the rabbit wants to do and where it wants to go, what it wants to eat, what space it needs. Um, I realized I'm not, I'm, I'm engaging in a type of objectification. Actually, I think that there's we... A lot, there's a great deal of self-reflection to be done. I think the closing words of your book actually are, it almost, it almost doesn't matter what it is as long as you're doing something. So there's, there's work for everyone to be doing on that yes, sense absolutely. of what the power Now, if only we could get are. men who are being held accountable to engage in that, that self-reflection. I'm not saying that I'm amazing at it. I'm just saying I could see that because many years in the feminist movement was... I, suddenly it clicked in my brain. That, that reflection. And in a sense, this, this whole event is a sort of, is an expression of power. We, we are performing power here. And I'm very anxious to get to questions and, and, to, and to, involve, to involve everybody here. And so please start to put your hands up soon. But in the meantime, while the mics roam, is there anything else, or Jermaine or um, Namito, is there anything else that you wanted to add to what we've just covered? I wanted to add one thing about the online, and which is not on trolling, but the other side, and I, I find that with my friends and my, my, I'm talking about my women friends. So we would be following a lot of these liberal, cool men, and they never followed us back. And we were like groupies. Do you get that? Do you get that? So, you know, you these cool guys, you know, they're, they're bearded guys, you know who I'm talking about. And they don't follow you back. They do not engage with you on social media. They're only talking to each other. And these are liberal guys. They're our guys. They're yeah. the guys on our side. Ultimate echo chamber. Thank you for listening to Jepper Bets, a podcast produced by Lonchora in association with the Z Jepper Literature Festival. Mm -hmm.